0: Hello and welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast as ever your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for July 2023 and it's hello from me Terry Bennett and hello from me Jenny Devitt. In this particular episode we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor including one regarding the podcast. Dorset farmer Andrew Livingston reflects on the issue of the pollution of our rivers and seas. And you can hear my final interview in our short series featuring Sherburn Antique Steelers, who've recently appeared on national television. But first, here's our editor, Laura Hitchcock.
1: As the mother of four adult children well, one's 16, so she just thinks she's an adult, I find myself constantly amazed and inspired by the attitudes and resilience of this next generation. They navigate a world filled with challenges, uncertainties, pressures, and yet they continue to shine brightly, trying hard to make a positive impact. At every turn, they're dismissed. They're woke snowflakes. They're lazy, sensitive souls who need to get a backbone to face real life, to suck it up, buttercup. Life's not fair. Yet from where I'm sitting... I see a generation more tolerant and more inclusive than any of those who've come before. Louis Capaldi was a headliner at Glastonbury this year and I'm sure anyone who saw his set will always remember it. He's made no secret recently of his battle with Tourette's and throughout the performance his tics became more pronounced. Eventually his voice failed. He simply stopped singing, his distress obvious. But what struck me was the response from the crowd, that mass of the youth of today. Nobody mocked, nobody jeered. Instead, the vast sea of people raised their voices and sang for him. They carried him. They filled the spaces where he faltered. The acceptance, tolerance, understanding, empathy, compassion exhibited by the Glastonbury crowd, was it was beautiful. An example of the strength of unity in a world that seems so divided. It filled me with hope. Our young people may be shouting down the intolerant voices of their elders. They may be angry at this world we're leaving them to fix. But their resilience, their search for authenticity and their unwavering hope for a better future are a daily inspiration and a guilty poke at my grumpy, cynical self. They're also ridiculously funny. When I grow up, I plan to be more like them.
0: I do so much agree, Laura. And we start our selection of your letters to the editor this time with a response to last month's Rage Against the mo. Referring to the letter published in June titled Rage Against the Mow, I can't help but express my deep disappointment as well. I wholeheartedly agree with Sarah G.'s sentiments. The Council's actions of mowing during No Mow May have shown blatant disregard for the welfare of local wildlife and the ecosystem. It's high time they revisit their policies and take our local environment seriously. And that contributor's name and address were supplied.
2: And Tom Stanton of Sherborne writes on the same subject he says, "I' am writing in response to the letter by Sarah G from Sturminster Newton about the premature trimming of our grass verges during no mo May. Sarah's concern resonated with me, but a public hounding, trendy though that may be now, is not the adult and mature way forward. Perhaps Sarah G should direct her inquiries to the council first. I think we need to discuss the reasons for such decisions." instead of purely blaming the Council. Perhaps we should invite the Council to share their maintenance schedule and the rationale behind it, and open up a dialogue to avoid such issues in the future. Only then can we work together to preserve our
0: local ecosystem. This letter is from Brian Thorne of Wimborne on the subject of kickboxing. I read your June 2023 editorial and couldn't help but question your approach towards physical activity. It seems you're engaged in kickboxing to spite your teenagers. Isn't it crucial to undertake physical activities because they benefit us health-wise and not merely to prove a point to others? Moreover, the dismissive remark on your body not being a typical kickboxer's may discourage other potential learners. Shouldn't we promote body positivity and inclusivity in all aspects of life, including sports? Editor Laura responds. Though humorous, I'm fairly sure my letter was very clear in expressing my love for kickboxing and in the fact that I take great joy in the sport. I am also very comfortable with being an overweight, middle-aged mum who kickboxes, and I strongly encourage everyone, no matter their body type, to get up and be more active. I passed my grading, by the way. Three more to Black Belt, and thanks for asking.
2: Marion S. of Blandford wrote in on the subject of the Swanage hike. I refer, she says, to your experience shared in June's edition regarding your visit to the AONB near Swanage. While I appreciate your enthusiasm about the region's stunning heathland and the peace one may find there before the summer rush, I want to challenge your invitation to readers to explore the area. We must remember that such beautiful landscapes are delicate ecosystems that could potentially be harmed by increased foot traffic. Even with the best intentions, visitors can disrupt the local fauna and flora, inadvertently damaging these habitats. In the future, I request that you consider the potential impact on the environment before encouraging such
0: visits. A further letter on the same subject from Tina Gordon of Blandford. In your June 2023 issue, you detailed a beautiful walk from Swanage. I did a particularly lovely seven mile version using your suggested route and shortcuts, thank you. And also very much enjoyed your editorial expressing your delight in the beauty of Dorset in the early summer. I would like to express my appreciation The abundance of natural beauty in Dorset, from the lush hedgerows to the wildflower meadows and empty heathlands, is often overlooked by those who either scoot past Dorset on their way elsewhere, or, sadly, by those so caught up in the treadmill of modern stressful life that they have no time to stop and enjoy it. I find your magazine motivates me every month. We locals must venture outdoors and explore our surroundings more often.
2: And finally, a letter very much appreciated by Terry and me from Roger B. of Shaftesbury about the podcast. He says, I'm a longtime subscriber and follower of the BV, and more recently, its associated podcast. I've recently been immensely impressed by the quality of the podcast, particularly over the last few months, and I felt compelled to voice my appreciation for the hard work and dedication demonstrated by the team. Firstly, I'd like to commend the dynamic duo of Jenny Devitt and Terry Bennett. The relaxed yet insightful style of their interviews has become something I look forward to each month. Their engaging conversations provide a fresh perspective and understanding. I find, even when I've already read the relevant magazine article, I never fail to learn something new from the podcast. Recent highlights for me were Jenny's talk with Natalie Ween on her Dorset Island Discs, Lily Smith and her rare breed pigs. I always enjoy Jane Adams when she appears and Terry's interview with the chap from Sherbourne Antiques prompted me to visit and I'm so glad I did. I'll admit I always skip Karen Geary's nutrition articles, not my thing, but her interview this week was interesting and entertaining and is what prompted me to write. The podcast not only complements the magazine, but adds another dimension to the stories, making them come alive in a unique way. I would encourage any BV reader who hasn't yet dipped into the podcast to give it a try and enjoy the excellent interviews and stories that Jenny and Terry bring to us each month. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Roger, for your very kind words.
0: And in very much echoing Jenny's appreciation, may I say that we welcome all feedback regarding the podcast, including any ways in which you feel it might be improved.
2: Of great concern to us all, I think, is the way our rivers and seas are being polluted by the water company's practice of dumping raw sewage into them. Water was privatised under Maggie Thatcher in 1989, and since then, little investment would appear to have gone into improving and updating the country's sewage infrastructure, whilst shareholders' profits, bosses' bonuses and water company debt have soared. In the June issue of the BV online magazine, Dorset farmer and regular contributor Andrew Livingston wrote an article about how farmers are frequently given a hard time over water pollution, unlike the water companies, until, of course, relatively recently. I said to Andrew that I personally found it rather shocking that currently almost none of England's rivers are considered clean, safe or unpolluted.
3: It really is. I mean, I grew up in a village called Hook in Dorset and we used to always go to Newton and swim in the rivers as a child, but... Finding out what I found out over the last couple of months, I don't know if I'd let my children do it. It's horrible reading; it really is.
2: And and what's the main what's the main problem? I mean, what is the main pollutant in these in in rivers such as the One Year Hook that you were just talking about?
3: Well, the main issue is in times of real wet weather, where um, sewage companies are allowed to dump raw sewage into the rivers to stop their sites from overflowing as the water levels rise. But with the raw sewage comes so many additional horrific additives to the water, such as phosphates, which does massive damage to the ecology of the rivers.
2: And where does phosphate come from then, mostly?
3: It comes from the, the products they use to break down the effluent, to break down the, the faeces, as it were. And it comes from the feces,
2: but it also comes. If I understand correctly, it also comes for as a sort of byproduct of uh, uh, what farmers put on their fields.
3: Uh, yes, it is. It is a, a byproduct of a fertilizer. Um, so farmers do also predominantly get a blame for the condition of rivers. Um, if you if you look at the the River Wye in Hereford. Um, they have massive issues with phosphate levels due to the amount of chicken manure that's spread around the area because of the high number of poultry farms that are in that county.
2: Yes, Herefordshire and Worcestershire have, uh, if I understand correctly, have have the biggest percentage of large uh, factory farms, chicken factory farms in the whole country, don't they? And, and the, the Y is effectively dying as a river.
3: It is, it is, yeah. The main poultry producer in that area, called Avara Foods, they are currently working hard to to reduce the phosphate levels and they have now begun monitoring the levels in the river because of the amount of complaints. And uh, it is also now pretty much impossible to get planning permission to build a new poultry farm in that area just because they know it's an issue and they don't want to continue contributing to that issue.
2: But to come back to our county, to come back to Dorset, uh, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying effectively that most of the phosphate pollution, which is so environmentally damaging, which enters the watercourses, is not coming from farming, but from uh, the water companies, from sewage.
3: Yes, that's correct, because any farmer will tell you that there is no point muck spreading on a field when it's about to rain because you're just wasting your time. So when, when these high levels are found, they're found all the time, all year round. It's not just in muck spreading season um, for agriculture.
2: Uh, But, of course, this whole business of uh, the pollution and the level of pollution from the water companies nationally is something that's really only come to light in relatively recent times, isn't it? And up until then, I guess that it's mostly been farmers who've been blamed for polluting watercourses. Do do you you think that's fair? Uh,
3: No, no, I I do not. I, I think farmers, unfortunately, get the blame for most things in life, unfortunately, farmers are never particularly put in a, a good light in the media, and they're often the scapegoat for for many issues when realistically, if you look at the last few years, I mean this country wouldn't have survived COVID if it wasn't for the farmers that are out there producing food for everyone day in day out with no social contact with anyone.
2: So the the you, from what you're saying, it sounds as if it's it's a case of the little boys get for the blame, whereas it's the big boys who really should be blamed.
3: Uh, yes, it should be. Uh, I think um, looking at the response to my article last month, I think that it's also it's also the the perception of the public people people don't feel as though these water companies should be getting away with it and the bosses of these water companies should be getting such big bonuses which equate to the level of pollution in the water and how um, environmentally friendly they have been when they're not. They're, it's awful, it really is.
2: And my understanding is that the uh, the boss of Wessex Water, which is the area that that, uh, that Supplies us with our uh, water supplies and our sewage. Received something like sixty one thousand um, pounds for in his annual bonus recently.
3: Yes, yeah, for hitting green targets. Even though a, a report showed that that they'd actually gotten they'd actually released more raw sewage into the rivers in that previous period than previously before. It's just absurd to me, it's sickening really.
2: Andrew, given the amount of adverse publicity uh, that the water companies nationally have received recently, do you think that the tide is now turning against them?
3: I would like to think so, but unfortunately the owners of these big businesses and these big companies, they usually have a large amount of protection from the government, which means that nothing will be done about it which is just the sad fact of life, unfortunately.
2: And not even if there's sufficient public pressure?
3: Well, if people kick up enough of a stink, then hopefully something will be done. But there's so many issues going on that just get brushed under the carpet. I feel as though it's just going to be one of those things and it's the rivers that are going to have to pay for it.
2: You say that uh, there are so many issues being brushed under the carpet. What, for example?
3: For example, issues on inflation, immigration, I mean, every daily issue that the government has, has to tackle, and the public, well, and I guess the, the worst one at the moment is you look at the Just Stop Oil protesters. I, I think no matter how much they paint buildings and, and ruin sporting events, I don't think anything will be done other than what is currently being done anyway.
2: I don't know what your feelings are on the matter, but it is a, a rather surprising um, and perhaps alarming fact that of all the countries in the world, ours is the only one that has privatised water.
3: I, I did not know that. That is... Um, it's, it's, if you think about it, I don't know what difference the government would make if it was a, a nationally run service Anyway, I think they'd still run shortcuts and do whatever they can to do it the cheapest way possible, no matter what the damage is.
2: So what would you like to see happening uh, to the water in this country Uh, would you like to see it being uh, going back into um, going out of private ownership so that there aren't the bonuses paid and the money isn't going into investment uh, accounts where there's little transparency and where a lot of the profits are going abroad?
3: I wouldn't call so much for, for that kind of action but I would certainly suggest that there is some auditing service that begins punishing water companies for when they are taking shortcuts and they are not being environmentally friendly. And I would certainly control bonuses, have bonuses given out when targets are actually met, when when water courses are starting to look a bit cleaner and a bit greener and, and ecology is... It's improving. One idea for one would be if a sewage company, if a river within a sewage company's catchment, a water company's catchment area is deemed to be not clean enough, I would take their bonuses away and I would use the money to give to local charities that will improve the ecology of the area.
2: Dorset farmer Andrew Livingston on what is currently a topic very much in the news and of great concern to us all.
0: If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you may recall that in the June episodes, we featured interviews with Craig Wharton of the Sherborne Antiques Market and Karen Speed of Molecular, both businesses having recently featured on national television programmes. Time constraints prevented us from including the final interview with George Holtby of Holtby & Co, who occupy premises in the old yarn mill just down from Molecular. I recorded an interview a few weeks ago with George, and here it is now. Just along from Molecular is George Holtby. And George, you have got another unit within the old yarn mills. How long have you been here?
4: I've been here for about a year and a, a half. Yeah, last Christmas. And if I may
0: say, you are on the younger end of the scale of antiques dealers. I think you probably bring the average yeah, age down a bit. I, th-
4: I think the perception of antique dealers is maybe a little bit older than me. But uh, yeah, I'm 32, been self-employed for about two and a half, three years.
0: And what, what's your background? You, you were up in London, I believe, originally, Yeah, were
4: you? so I, when I sort of first started, I um, well, initially worked in Newcastle um, for a few months and then got a job as a porter at Christie's, which is um, in South Kensington. I mean, it,
0: that must have been interesting work. I, I mean, one imagines that Christie's in London would have a fair variety of pretty interesting things
4: yeah. so Christie's South Kensington where I worked was the busiest sale room in the world um, so they had sales nearly every day as a porter you're you're in all the stores you're in the warehouses you're looking at thousands of lots a week and you know some some of that information kind of ends up soaking in by osmosis really and, and you just find yourself learning about things and learning about styles and and value what makes something valuable
0: and what, was that the plan when you went there? Were you, were you hoping to get into antiques, or was it just um, a job and it kind of happened?
4: I don't think I've ever really had a particularly good plan uh, about anything. I think, I think it was an organic sort of process really. I used to see dealers coming in and viewing all the sales, looking at all the, all the stuff, turning chairs upside down and I just I thought that looked fun. I, I liked the idea of going around to different sales and, and buying something, creating a look you know, putting interesting objects together, and, and so um, the passion kind of stemmed from from those early days. So it so. must have
0: been a little bit of a leap of faith then jumping from an employment effectively into into self-employment and, and starting up your own...
4: Totally, yeah. I mean, uh, while I was working, I'd sort of been buying bits as I went along, uh, which gave me a bit of a bolster when I started on my own. So I, so I went self-employed and, and had quite a bit of stuff to sell to sort of... Set me off, but you know there's loads of other aspects of it: building a website, all the photography. There's there's loads of different aspects to being an antiques dealer, which you have to sort of learn about. And um, and then I guess
0: taking the step and getting your own premises, as opposed yes. to doing it from your garage or wherever you were doing it from, yeah. is is another lot of overhead you're taking on. So again, you of must course, be reasonably yeah. confident you're going to make it successful. Well, yeah,
4: I mean. You never really know where you are with it um, for the first few years of being self-employed. But, um, I mean, before, I kept everything in our flat, basically. And my wife, I think, gradually got fed up with having our corridors full of um, furniture that we didn't didn't particularly need. So getting my own premises was something I actually desperately needed by the time I got it. And these units down at the old yarn mills are are perfect. You know, they're they're bright, big, open spaces. You can kind of do whatever you want with them, and they're they're old, so they they've got a bit of that sort of old industrial charm. Uh, I'd rather be in somewhere like this than a sort of new build office block or something. It's got it's got a bit of character, which lends itself quite well to displaying antiques. And um,
0: uh, what brought you to Sherborne? Is there a
4: local connection here? Not at all, not at all. My my family all live in well, all live in Yorkshire. I kind of ended up here by accident. For a job, which which was the auction charter house uh, down the road where I used to work, and I just quite liked it, and um, decided to stay for the long term. And
0: tell us about the shop. You've got just looking around here, lots of items of furniture, mirrors, lighting. I yeah. can see some books at the back there, as a stag's head looking down on yeah. us. Some old <laughs> some old posters, some Toodoo. tables yeah. and chairs, and one thing yeah. or another. Do you have a particular theme? What's your interest?
4: I'd suppose the theme really is the sort of English country house aesthetic really. Not, not exclusively, I've, I've got things from the 20th century, I've got Art Deco, I've got Edwardian, arts and crafts, a bit of Georgian. I suppose it's an interiors look and a, and a real mix. It's quite difficult to sum up my style, really, but I mean the best thing is come down and have a look, I suppose, um, and then you'll get a, get an idea of it. But I, th- I think it's sort of a country house look is um, yeah, is yeah. probably the best way to describe it. Really, yeah, I think that's
0: it's very accurate, apart from maybe the rather dominating lights you have down yes. in the middle here, which w- would certainly look out of place in a country house. When yeah, what, what's the history of those? They're, they're, um, they're big globes, which well, I'm, I'm saying
4: would probably be two or three foot. Diameter. <laughs> they are big, yeah. So, I mean, these came well fr- from a chap in Sussex, actually, and, and a big dealer, and I think, I think they, they probably originally came out of a, of a big office or something in London. But, you know, they are sort of 1950s in style, but they're brand new. Yeah. Um,
0: and lighting is very much the in thing, isn't it, at the moment? Oh,
4: definitely. I mean, you can completely transform an interior with lighting. Yeah. If, you, if you've got nice furniture and then strip lighting... The furniture's not going to look Doesn't very work, good. Does it? No. Um, yeah, lighting is key yeah. uh, in a space. So. And where,
0: where do you go buying? What's, uh, do you travel the country or do you do most of it online?
4: buy from the trade. I buy from auctions, mainly local auctions, but certainly not exclusively. I bought a table from Kent last week, for example. I, yeah, I, I, I buy from uh, other dealers up north. So there's a, there's a bit of logistics to organise. Um, I've constantly got carriers coming and going from from wherever and um so yeah you know and and that's another overhead so it's sort of there are lots of different things to consider i I do like buying locally really it's Mm. easier i like physically handling the things before i buy them you know you can often be disappointed if you see something online you buy it and then you get it it's often not as good as as what you expect it to be so um and your own yeah. customers, do, you, uh, do they tend to be local
0: or, again, I presume there's an online business?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm mainly online, really. Yeah, so, I mean, these days, Antique's dealing, I think, you've, you've got to have an online presence. And I'm on about three different sort of antique platform sites who have got thousands of dealers on them. And, you know, they, they just have massive website traffic. And, um, yeah, so, so they're useful. Now, I have... Everything goes onto my own website, and Co. UK as well, and I think it, particularly if you have a client like an interior designer and stuff, that they, they like to look at just your stuff all in one place. Uh, in my experience, so that's why it's good to have your own website as well. I think. Um, and uh, as we've
0: reflected, you're young. What's the plans for the future? You obviously like to expand the business, I presume. Uh, any particular
4: angles yeah. on that? I think my plan for the future is just buy better and better things. Really, you, you can buy cheap not particularly exciting stuff all day every day you know which is fine people do that but i'd rather buy fewer things but better things really so i suppose it's sort of just gradually upgrading the stock is probably my plan for the future Mm. um i'm doing a big antiques fair in london which is a big deal for me called basi decorative fair in may so that's kind of a, a major major thing for me so i'm buying i'm trying to buy nice things for that basically and I imagine those sorts of things are, are good showcases for your business. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just from a marketing point of view, definitely, yeah. It's, it's all about meeting other dealers, meeting good clients. Um, yeah, it's just a good way of putting your name out there, getting well known. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not particularly well known. I mean, that is why the internet's so useful, because even for someone that's just started, you can put your stuff in front of thousands of people, whereas back in the day, it would be who's going to wander into your shop. And if you're out in the sticks, no one's going to wander into your shop. So, um, Well, George, thank you
0: very much. And we wish you well with the business. We'll keep an eye on it and uh, maybe come back and see you again at
4: a later stage. But uh, thanks for having us here today. Uh, Great to see you. Thanks a lot.
0: And my appreciation goes to the three dealers we've featured in this series. Sherborne is particularly blessed with many similar antiques outlets and all of them are well worth a visit. Well, that's it for episode one. We hope that you found it interesting and that you'll join us next week for episode two. Until then, thanks for listening. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next time, bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt.